Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Mark Rose podcast. I've been noticing the collective conversation that has increased around the subject of mental health. And we'll put under that umbrella emotional health, relational health. This subject is becoming more mainstream, one, because it's beginning to be destigmatized for many reasons, but mainly because it's a necessary conversation due to the state of our world, due to the state of our society and lockdowns and stress and COVID and all the things. And I think this is really an indication of what we constantly do, which is that we wait till we have to do things and we're not proactively supporting through things. You know, anyone could have predicted that this, we would be in the greatest mental health crisis of our time. And I, I would have said that before COVID. I think technology has contributed to that. I think food access issues, socioeconomic wealth differences, there's so many factors that influence this and it is frustrating and makes me angry, makes me emotional to think that here we are again, often playing catch up. You know, there's many reasons, you know, so many great content creators, therapists, coaches who are putting out incredible content and, you know, there's challenges getting access to support for mental health, things like uh, the cost, things like ensuring the quality of it, you know, ensuring that it's relevant. And, you know, there's so many different things that influence it. And this is really why I co-founded an app called Mind, which is M-I-N-E apostrophe D. And you can grab it there. We created it so that we could democratize emotional health, that we could make relational, emotional wellness sexy, that it could be something we do because we want to, not because we have to. You think like all the people who are the best in the world have coaches, have people they work with, have therapists, have, you know, because they don't go into it thinking, because I'm seeing this person, I must be flawed. It's because I'm doing this work, I must just want to get better. 
And because we've attached this idea that in order for me to say yes to this thing, I have to hit some sort of rock bottom that acknowledges that I'm not that good at this thing. So by the time people see therapists, it's for couples therapy, it's so far down the road that the relationship is often hard to salvage because it's like six years later, you know, and I remember this research that looked at by the time a woman leaves in a relationship and actually asks for the divorce, it's been two years since the attempts at repairing it. And I know that's that data is based on the gender differential, which makes a lot of sense in a heteronormative space because women are socialized to have a much more accurate barometer as to the temperature of a relationship. And there's a lot of really interesting research looking at that, that men will sort of be okay with what is kind of okay, but women will not. They want their relationships to be thriving, to at least be satisfying. And of course, there's so many developmental differences and socializing differences that create that environment. But my point being That the same space that is required for me to improve anything is the acknowledgement I might not be good at something, which doesn't have to be attached to my self-worth, that I'm enough knowing that I need to be better, that my self-worth isn't attached to this, I said yes to therapy, I must be broken. But why do we wait till we are at this fractured place? And look, collectively, we're at somewhat of a fractured place. Someone is even probably being light about it. And I don't mean to minimize it. Just like you immerse yourself in the data and you go, holy shit, there's a lot happening here. And I read recently a poll done by the morning, the, a company called Morning Consult. And we'll put a link in the show notes to the article. And it was really fascinating. It was looking at in 2020 for people, did certain areas of their life get better or worse? And it looked at mental health, personal finances, job security, take-home pay, physical health, personal life, work-life balance. And the real, like the most important aspects that we need to know about, which I'll summarize real simply, is that across the board, the only real standout, significantly different categories for people where 2020 made them awesomer were people with postgraduate degrees, and people who made more than $100,000, which I would imagine there's a correlation between those two things. So postgraduate education and more than 100 k I've had this conversation before, not necessarily on the podcast as much, but on my Instagram and with people that I love and people that I don't know, but sure, I'm, I have love for them. Where there's this real like, we got to lock down, it's the important thing, got to save lives. And it's like, Why are we not looking at the collective experience here? Any public health official should look at the collective experience. Any decision that's made on that grander level must take into account all these things. None of this is new news. Like what I'm saying is not like, oh, we needed a poll to figure that out. It's like, it's so, it's so obvious that the lockdown is a privilege. And I'm not saying that it is right or isn't right. It's just the fact that it's a privilege and the fact that it has affected so many of us. And to say like we need each other now more than ever, we must be there for one another. And we are so split and divided in what your political belief is and are you pro this or anti this? Or, and it's like, do you give a fuck about other people? Yes. Okay. Do you care 
that people feel loved and safe? Yes. Do you like feeling that way? Yes. How do you cultivate it? Great question. We don't cultivate it through hate. We don't cultivate it through divisiveness. And you know, that reactivity comes from fear. It comes from fear of our own death. It comes from fear of so many things. And we should be diving into that. I see people losing their fucking minds on videos about other people's behavior, which don't get me wrong. Again, super important that we curate, that we allow certain behaviors and not. We have boundaries around those things. But so much of our reactivity is not equivalent to the actual thing that's occurring in the moment. And that shows us that there's something deeper down that is going on. And you think about that relationally. How many times in the moment is your reaction so much greater than what is actually occurring? And it shows you that the overt reactivity is because there's something historical going on within. It's not about the moment. It's about the past times you felt that way and maybe never expressed it, or it's your most sensitive wound. And what an invitation into our wounds, into our healing. I remember hearing someone say, like, whatever you judge in another is something you haven't accepted in yourself. And I was like, that's total bullshit. Like, go smoke some more weed. You know? And now I see it's so fucking true. It's like what I haven't, the aspects of their character, the fear I have of me being like that, the, you know, you, you just start to see the truth that resonates in there. You know, our own ability to be intolerant, our own ability to make poor choices, our own ability to be selfish or passive or aggressive or assertive or whatever it is. And of course, there'll always be like real advanced, exaggerated examples that are not going to make sense. And I acknowledge that. And what an invitation to look within. Oh my gosh, I look at everything that's going on and I realize like when I get overtly activated, I'm like, ooh, I'm being enrolled by a narrative. I'm being enrolled by emotion. And it doesn't stop because you're aware of it. You just don't allow the emotion to have you do something that's going to damage your relationships or make rash decisions. And that takes the ability to sit with oneself and to sit with the possibility that we can be better. And so I say all of that with just the invitation for us to maybe find a little more compassion for one another, a little more grace, a little more love, a little more curiosity. I certainly don't have all the answers, but I'm curious about what they are. And once I find one, I'm also really practicing being mindful that it might change and it might not be right. And it's a, it's a beautiful place to be because it allows the flexibility of my identity, the fluidity of how I see the world. And so it's with saying all of that, <laughs> that maybe we just breathe a little deeper throughout the day-to-day -day when you listen to this. And that, hey, maybe you go give this podcast a five-star review and a written review and share it if it brings you some love and maybe a little more insight. And maybe it offers that to someone else. That's my selfish ask. <laughs> I'm so excited for the podcast guest today. They are the hosts of Cheaper Than Therapy, which is Vanessa and Danae. And they're incredible. And they're doing such great work in the world. Even the title of their podcast tells you how much they are interested in giving people access to the information that empowers us to heal. And so without further ado, 
here is the podcast episode with the host of Cheaper Than Therapy. Much love. Today, I am joined by one of my favorite podcast hosts, oh. which it sounds weird to say it in plural because there's two of you. So one of my <laughs> One of my favorite podcasts and their hosts, Danae and Vanessa, who are both therapists, and the podcast is Cheaper Than Therapy, therapists and coaches, because I think there is a nice combination of those things. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah. Well, I had the absolute pleasure of being on your podcast, and um, you know, I, I love what your mission is, and I'm curious if you could share with everyone, like, what one, what made you merge forces and create mm-hmm. that together? And yeah, like, how did we get here first? Not as a collective, but, but for you, that's a whole Yeah, the collective would be a whole long time. <laughs> um, well, I'll just start by saying Danae and I for sure knew each other in a past life. We reconvened, I guess, in grad school. I'm the extrovert in the relationship. She's the extrovert in the relationship. So I, I adopted her and told her she would be my friend. Had <laughs> the to each other's yang in every possible way. I like um, that technique. <laughs> that's how most introverts make friends is extroverts adopt them. We know this. <laughs> they come r- rustle them in. I like that. You see us um, hiding in a corner afraid someone will notice us and you pull us out. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So we, we met in grad school and just kind of instantly became soul sisters. And so after school, you know, we, we we live close to each other and we just continue to stay close. And I think both of our missions are so similar and we have such a passion for um, bringing the deep conversations and introspection that goes on behind the therapy doors to everybody, right? We, we come yeah. from a depth, depth psychology background. So the school that yeah. we went to is like Jungian based and it's much more about the unconscious and, you know, the inner landscape. It's a lot less behavioral based. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot of like deep soul enriching conversations that we just, we used to nerd out on and we wanted to make sure everybody else could join us that wanted to nerd out on it too. Yeah. Yeah, Nerds unite. I love that. It's like, oh, let's go listen to this. I I love nerding out. So it's perfect. And Jungian psychology is, uh, let's explore the the unconscious and the shadows and the depths. Mm -hmm. What about you, Janae? Yeah, I think, you know, we would consistently have conversations about how often people would come into our therapy rooms and talk about, you know, it took me so long to get here. I was terrified. I had no idea what to expect. And, you know, we just kind of said, it doesn't need to be this way. You know, we could give a little bit of a peek Mm -hmm. behind the doors and let people know what goes on in the therapy rooms, right? So we decided that we were going to not only have some of the conversations that we would consistently geek out together as we would be driving back and forth to grad school or when we would get together, but also um, we wanted to bring on some of the people that we really love and respect the work they're doing in the field of psychology and even just like self-exploration and knowing ourselves on a deeper level. And then um, the other part of the podcast is that we invite people to come on for like mini coaching sessions, right? So awesome. They write in with a problem they're having, something that's going on in their life. And Vanessa and I basically do a little short version of a therapy session so people can have a feel for like what it would be like if you were sitting in a room with a therapist. That's fantastic because I think a lot of the, you know, unless you're in New York, which has very much like a therapy culture, Mm -hmm. uh, that's sort of, I mean, that's incredibly rare. So it gives us a window into like, what might I find if I was to go or I'm actually don't want to go. I'm just going to listen to other people go. And then, you know, it, we start to probably feel witnessed in a lot of ways because we see that other people have similar thoughts, feelings, concerns. And I, I think just that window into it, 
uh, is probably incredibly healing. I'm sure you get lots of messages just about that, being able to feel witness through someone else being witness. Yeah, I think it's um, so powerful for all of us when we have that realization that I'm not alone in my mm. struggle. And so a lot of the people who have commented, whether it's through Instagram or through our email and have said, you know, oh my God, I loved that episode with Sarah or with so-and-so because, you know, I'm going through something exactly the same. And it's just, it makes you feel like you're not alone. Like I said, it's like this connecting ability um, as human beings, you know, it's, it's bringing us back to the collective and we're just, we're all in this together. Mm. Yeah. Uh, do you have any, yeah, I think there's so many ways that we tend to feel like there's something wrong with me when we are not witnessed in whatever the experiences that I'm having, right? And that didn't used to be the way it was. Like we used to have so much more space for collective experiences and ritual and being together to hold space for um, mm. our, our growth and our experience. And that's just not where we are as a culture anymore. And it has led to so much suffering. You know, um, I remember when I was becoming a therapist, I read something James Hillman said about like depression is the psyche's way of saying, I'm, I refuse to participate in this mania anymore. And I think that there's, there's just so much about our culture that is crazy (laughs) and not the way that we are supposed to be living as human animals. And there's no container for it. And, um, you know, there used to be, we used to hold space for one another. We used to have, you know, sacred circles and ways that we would come together and hold space for people's struggles and evolution. And, um, we don't do that anymore, but I think the therapy rooms and group therapy rooms are a space where we do that, you know? Yeah. I'm trying to remember where, who said this quote, but I heard Francis Weller say, which is that we don't go to therapy to be fixed. We go there to be witnessed, you know? And, and what you're saying, you know, about this idea that our communities, our families are, we're so individuated, you know, in so many ways. And, you know, um, Francis, when I had him on the podcast, he said that psychology in a lot of ways has, and he's a psychologist too. And he said, psychology in a lot of ways has forgotten about the self, uh, or mm. sorry, it's so self imposed that right. um, it's forgotten about the collective, like yes. the collective unconscious, the collective experience, the healing that a community brings that, you know, how long ago do you, I would be curious if there's, if you know, like where we really took the step out of those rituals, mm. you know, those rituals, maybe it was when um, colonizers, as we, you know, we would all be, is like as we move into North America and we leave our original cultures behind for the most part, not always, I'm like, be very curious as to um, when that occurred. Yeah. I mean, I don't know exactly when it occurred, but I do think that the field of psychology has played a part in this. Like Mm -hmm. the journey is so inward versus looking at the collective and what we're experiencing that is like the very human response to some things like a capitalist society and what this brings out Mm -hmm. in all of us. But I think, you know, in so many ways, if we look at like, like 2020 and everything that's gone on, you know, Vanessa and I've talked about this a lot. A lot of this was the response to an individualistic society, the nuclear family, everything is inward when that is just not how we are made. We are not supposed to operate this way. And I think so many people have sort of been, you know, singing this for a while. Like Esther Perel is one of my favorite teachers and she's someone who's been saying, this is sort of not how we're supposed to operate. You know, Um, we're trying to get everything from a relationship with one other person that we're supposed to get from an entire community of people. And I think, you know, last year 
when everything sort of shut down and the schools were shut down and we were just like in our homes alone without the supportive community, it really like on a visceral level brought home for us. This is why we're meant to be in community. This is why we need one another, you know? Yeah. It seems like an interesting message that we have been uh, at least unconsciously, if not consciously inundated with, which is everyone else is now a biological threat, Mm. you know, which, which that like, you know, we desperately need each other, especially now. And we, as you were saying, like the experience of having to hole up or having to isolate or having is, I mean, one, that's the way that they, you know, create the greatest punishment in prisons. And, Mm. you know, you think of like the, it's hard to even have a safe conversation about the consequences of the lockdown versus, you know, there's never been a cost benefit presented, which I'm not in public health, but I would imagine that would be the number one thing that you would want in terms of data. Because as psychologists, are you witnessing the, uh, the costs and, you know, in, in terms of what you're, you know, seeing in, in one, in terms of comments on the podcast, but also in your therapy rooms? Yeah. Your digital I, therapy rooms. <laughs> yeah. Our digital, now all digital. Yeah. I mean, and I think that there are other people that are kind of trying to shout this from the rooftops, right? We've already seen data coming out of um, certain provinces of China and, and certain areas in Japan where the um, you know suicide rate has gone through the roof coming out of lockdowns um, and all of the loneliness and depression and everything we're seeing. What I found interesting is I feel like it's almost, um, it's a mixed bag. So I've got a lot of people who are coming with much more heightened anxiety, much more heightened depression. Um, and then I've also got people that are coming who've actually softened, who've actually allowed this space. No, not allowed. This has been forced on them. And mm. what's happened is it's actually forced them to slow down and take a breath, whereas they've never actually allowed themselves that before. And mm. so while it's uncomfortable for them and they're experiencing things like anxiety and depression, they're also really working through and coming to the realization that in some ways this has been beneficial for them. They've gotten mm-hmm. more in touch with themselves, more in touch with you know their intuition, what makes them feel alive. They've improved their relationships actually. I mean, yes, I've experienced people who, you know, you're on top of each other all the time. And so now you hate each other. <laughs> but on the other other side of that, some people have actually deepened their relationship because they've been forced to. Yeah. I just, I really feel like this has brought into question all the ways that we've been disconnected from the sacred, from the bigger picture, which is so much of what depth psychology Mm -hmm. is about. And I think we have for so long been holding more than the human psyche is capable of metabolizing, but we've just been so distracted from it. And so this is sort of like this forced slowdown has led us let us um, sit in some of, some of the uncertainty and panic and um, you know terror that comes up a lot of times, and we are learning to sort of metabolize our emotions in a way that I think hopefully is a process of initiation and us growing into a next level as a human race. But you know, um, I think you know Vanessa and I are both recently became mothers. And I think we talk a lot about this period in time and how much it is sort of reminiscent of when we're in that process of initiation, um, sort of shifting from maiden to mother, right? And there's all of these moments of fear and, you know, 
you're, when you're in the laboring process, there's contractions and it's like, it's big and it's like, what's happening? And oh my God. And, and then, you know, like there's a calm and then another contraction. And I think that's what's happening now is we're sort of learning to be with difficult emotions and be with ourselves in a way that we hadn't been forced to. And I think it's because we're supposed to, um, to evolve. And this is our initiation process. That's just how I've been holding it with a lot of clients recently. So I understand what you're saying. The depth psychology view of what we're experiencing is that we're as a collective, I guess, essentially what is implicit is becoming explicit as in what's, what's unhealed within us. What's um, even in our relationships. Cause as you were saying, Vanessa, that the, some relationships got deeper and others cracked or are cracking. And so the view being that all of that is necessary for us as a collective, us as an individual, which contributes to the collective, are going to another level or on our way, or maybe, oh, please say we're there. Oh, <laughs> we're, not, but, we're not there. But, yeah, we're not um, there. And by the way, there's another level after that, but it won't be like 2020. Yeah. I mean, I think we're in the contractions, right? Like, I don't think we're there. And I think to the point Vanessa was making, the more that we're sort of resisting this, I think that there is just like the suffering is bigger, right? It's mm-hmm. it's going to be difficult. It's going to be scary regardless. But I think just like the laboring process, the more we sort of resist and, and I don't want this to be happening. I just want to go back to the way things were versus sort of what has this come to teach me? How can I go inward and be curious about this moment? How can I be curious about what is happening in my relationships that I was supposed to understand that I might not have had the time, the space to understand before this moment. I think it feels very different. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, if, if we're often resistant to what's coming up, you know, like through the busyness of life, we can sort of put things in the back pocket or sweep it under the rug. But certainly this experience that we've had has not given us a choice. Like Mm -hmm. we've had to consume what's going on. We've had to face it on some level. And, you know, it's a, it's certainly a different perspective to, you know, and I think a beautiful perspective to begin to look at everything in our lives. And if that's the step that does it to look at everything in our lives through the window of what's this here to teach me? How is this asking me to grow? Which doesn't dismiss the actual experience, but says, what are we going to do with this? Right. Well, and also it tells you the more you resist it, the harder it will be right? Mm -hmm. Which is the same thing in labor. The more you resist it, the more it will hurt actually. Um, And that's anything, any pain, right? So it's also telling us not just that, but then another layer is also um, what is your part in this? Mm -hmm. And that's not to like, you know, victim blame or anything like that. But if we look at ourselves as a collective, we were all complicit in this, you know, we were all complicit in this. Go, go, go. Like, drown ourselves in social media and substance and, you know, trivial things so that we didn't have to pay attention. We didn't have to slow down. Um, so it is being forced on us. And, and I do think part of the learning is in saying, okay, what can I take on and own and how can I show up differently? Um, if I do hope to evolve to this next level, because once I get the learning, once I get the understanding, you have to act differently, hmm. right? It's like anything that we've we've um, internalized, metabolized. You can't just go, oh, okay, and then go back to how things were. You have to show up differently. 
Um, so yeah, I think there's part of that too. Yeah, that's the third stage of the initiation process, right? Yep. That Francis Weller talks about a lot. Like once you see what you've seen, you can't go back, right? It's I yeah. once I've I left home. I know, right? <laughs> can't oh see what you've seen. And I think that there have been so many like horrific um truths that have been presented in our face. They're always there. You know, we have there has been this racial injustice, there has been this economic disparities. There has been what we've been doing to our earth. This has always been present. We've been able to distract from it, but hopefully, hopefully we can't unsee this now. You know, that is my prayer that we're, we're sort of in a space now where we can't go back to distracting away from what we've seen. Yeah. It seems like the microphone or the speaker has been turned up on everything with the massive subwoofer. And, mm. you know, I feel like I'm in my car when I was 18, you know, I'm like, boom, boom. <laughs> You're feeling it in your body. Right? Seriously. And it is a lot to hold, you know, I'm uh, as someone who I would say I had sound mental health. I've certainly felt the edges of my own, you know, felt anxiety creep up, felt, and you know, it's like, just cause you know about it or understand how to process it doesn't make it any more challenging. And even when you're in it, you know, it's like, well, I understand intellectually how to process this, but I know that the, the way out is, is not a fast thing. It's actually about the slow sort of um, methodical drip of integrating it, of, breathing into it of asking why, what it's here to teach me. I'm curious, what was it like to be going through the initiatory process of motherhood mm -hmm. as like, that's like a double 2020, you know, I think of not to say that motherhood's heart are, you know, a bad process, but like <laughs> a, a challenging, I couldn't even imagine labor. You're a portal. I mean, that in yeah. itself is mind fracturing to me. So it's yeah, I'm curious. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> It's not yeah. <laughs> um, just saying it like it is. Yeah. I, mean, I, yeah. I had mine two weeks before we went into lockdown. So, wow. um, you know, my entire experience so far of being a mother has been through the lens of quarantine, essentially. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I look at my 11 month old or 10 and a half month old and I realize like she doesn't know anything different than people wearing masks or social distancing or whatever. And I, I mean, they're resilient and I know she'll, she'll kind of bounce back, but the actual process of becoming a mother, you know, I remember multiple times calling Danae or texting Danae and being in a state of like, I mean, literally, because I'm I'm a bit of a swearer, I'm a New Yorker, and just being like, this is bullshit. Like, you're not meant to do this alone. This is fucking ridiculous. Like, just losing my mind and being like, it is not meant to just be two people. Hmm, this no. is crazy making. Like, right. why has our culture, who, when, why, how has our culture decided that only two people should be managing this tiny yeah. human that needs 24 seven round the clock hair. Like this is lunacy, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I think a lot of my initiation because it was done in this way, it's like, not only does everybody in our culture think, Oh, this is how we do it. Just these two people now do that. And then put you in a bubble of quarantine on top of it. And I couldn't even have like my support mm -hmm. like Danae come and help me. You know, my family wasn't even able to come. My brother hasn't even met his niece yet because he hasn't been able to fly in without having to then quarantine and lose his job. Right. So it's just been, it's been amplified. I think what you said is perfect. It's like everything, the speaker's been turned up, the subwoofer's been turned up. Um, everything that most people experienced prior is now just like amplified times 10. What about for you, Janae? What's that been like? 
Yeah, I think motherhood for me was my first experience of, you know, I've certainly had other moments of feeling like I was being initiated into a different level of being, but motherhood was the first time that I was so like viscerally aware of like, oh, I need other mamas. And so mm-hmm. I had so much um just like compassion for what you're experiencing because I think it is like the most difficult time to not be able to be in mom's groups and not be able to sort of like, there's just something so comforting and like, yes, this is exactly what this is for me. And that's not how we used to be. We used to like, you would have a baby and the other mothers would come, they'd take your baby and you would just go heal. That was your job. Right. And that's not what we do now. It's like, not only are you attempting to heal physically and emotionally and integrate all of what this experience has been for you, but you're doing it while caring for a human by yourself. Like, and yes, God bless the dads. There's only so much they can do in the beginning. You know, they need their mamas for everything. Attached to your literal (laughs) body. Right. (laughs) So the dads are like, I don't know. And it used to be the other women would come and they would sort of circle around you and hold space. And we feel that on a primal level when Mm -hmm. we go through this initiatory process. And it's like, I need other women right now. I need the support of my sisters. And Mm -hmm. there is such a loss in not having that. And you're just so aware of it during that time. I think. Yeah, especially thinking like not only does quarantine exacerbate that or make that obviously true, but the fact that that's not even part of our culture so as much as you're saying, like what when you think about like what were the community aspects that were normal in the human experience, what was it like? You know, I'm not go back into the archaeological uh, (laughs) human evolution, but I'm curious what you know, when I think about t- telling people, hey, you know, I'd love to s- buy land and start a community. People are like, oh, yeah, there's a documentary on that on, <laughs> with Osho. Like, oh, yeah. oh. People automatically think you mean like a culty like thing. Like we've almost shamed the idea of community mm. as opposed to we buy houses in communities. But if you do it with your friends, you've become a freaking cult. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and remember too, that we have, you're right. We have shamed it out of us. Like, and it's not we, I mean, it's come from above, right? I mean, there's a lot of people who benefit from us being isolated. There's a lot of people who benefit from us having this like nuclear family set up and structure and breaking apart communities and breaking apart those support systems. Uh, And so going back to what today was saying about a capitalistic culture, right? I mean, these structures are in place for, for reasons and we've, we've done what we've been told. And I think now what I love is there is a, a growing population of people who's, who are questioning that, you know, even to say something like, I'm going to go and buy house, houses with my friends and make a community. I've heard that multiple times and I, I genuinely Everywhere. believe it's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've become a little lately, um, and you keep hearing me talk about it, but I've just been a little obsessed with the idea of cults and how this happens and what's Pretty going on. <laughs> well, right. But like, what is going on in the human psyche that makes yeah. us so hungry for this? And mm. I absolutely think you're right that, you know, a lot of this has been shamed out of us, this meaning um, this like primal urge to be in community, to be witnessed in this way that we are. Like that is what happens when I am going through a point of suffering, a point of not feeling seen, um, othered alone. A lot of times what happens is in these like cult situations, what, however that shows up, I was just watching the, um, the documentary on the Nexium cult. Oh my God. The Val. Yeah. The Val. Oh, that's bananas, isn't it? That right? guy. Oh, that guy. But I think what we miss is that 10% 
often of what is going on in these cults is pretty bogus, but like 90% of what's happening is supportive and loving and honoring and um, a lot of truth that you've never had witnessed for you being witnessed. And so, yeah. And you want to do good for the world. Like there's that aspect of service. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it's, you know, we're really just dismissing this as like, oh, these are just like crazy people really doesn't hold reverence for what this space is that we all need. And I think if you look at, you know, uh, I hate to say it, but what's been going on in our country in terms of, you know, like we're just, there's just so much othering. There's so much dismissing um, without being willing to be curious about the other person's experience and why, you know, like if uh, we're like talking right now a week after this whole thing with like people storming the Capitol. And I've just been like, can we sit in a space of like, I want to understand what that's about for you. What made you so, you know, loyal to this um, leader that you are, you're willing to like, there are people who are now like losing their lives and, you know, their lives are blown up because they're in federal prison now because this happened. And it's like, God, was it worth it? But in a way it was because they were feeling a part of something and a time where we are so desperate to feel like I am held in that type of a container. Mm-hmm. I love that because that sort of points to one, I, th- I, I think at least I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it, that that part of what they, the people who stormed the Capitol and just, let's just put that sort of like general other to us yeah. is, uh, the shadow in some ways. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm afraid to even sit with the possibility of where they come from, what shaped them, like I love Sam Harris's book, uh, free will, because it talks about mm-hmm. this idea that if you traded places with everybody and lived their life, cell for cell, molecule for molecule, you would make every decision they make. And uh, that really makes you have to take a step back. Cause you, you know, there's some, I, in the book, he gives an example of a very like, pretty horrendous crime Hmm. and it shocks your system to be like, I would never do that. But the idea that we project free will, we project our own experiences and our own ability to choose on a heroin addict, just get sober, just stop doing the drug, not realizing the trauma and pain that makes you choose something like that. And when I think about our fear of being willing to witness other, it's like our fear of being able to witness within ourselves, the dark parts of our own psyche and dark, not being bad. Right. Dark just being unintegrated, unexplored. So I'm yes. curious your thoughts and, on that. And quote unquote normal. Mm. Right. Meaning we all share the darkness. <laughs> Every right. one of us. No one is above that. Yeah. I I just um have been reading uh Holly Whitaker's book. I don't know if you've heard of it, Mark. Quit like a woman. It's like blowing up my mind. Good. It's so good. Um, and you know, it's just really sort of so I'm a sober woman and, you know, I initially got sober through, you know, the medical model of 12 steps. And there's so much in this book that is calling into question so many things that I've understood about addiction and the way that we hold um, addiction in this country and mm-hmm. how much of this, um, there is so much room to question and, you know, just like things that I have felt the entire time. Like, for instance, if you go into a 12 step room, when you go in, what they will ask you to do is to sort of identify as an alcoholic, right? I'm yeah. an alcoholic, I'm an addict. And for me, something about that always felt like, 
whatever this moment of struggle I'm in, there is something about affirming that this is who I am. Like there are people who've been in these 12 step rooms for like 50 years, still sort of saying, I am an alcoholic. I am an addict. Yes. Even though I haven't drank alcohol in 50 years, that is who I am. Right. Something about that didn't sit right with me, my truth. And yet I was so hungry to have some sort of holding space. This is the direction. This is where you head. This is how you do this, that I was willing to sort of suppress that internal Mm -hmm. knowing that Mm -hmm. truth. Right. And I just think it really gave me insight into how we can get there because there was so much about what she's saying in that book that I was like, I hadn't, it's not that I hadn't known these things, but I sort of um, turned away from my knowing, right? I turned away from my truth in order to belong in the space of Mm. belonging, right? In terms of solution. And I think that that is just what I'm seeing in so many of these situations of the cults and the ways that we are like, you know, group think. And when people like leave these cults, they're like, I always like questioned like certain Mm. aspects of things, but I, for the greater good of what we were doing, the higher truth that was there, I sort of, I, I brushed that part aside. I let go of my knowing, right? Mm. Yeah. I, I remember listening to, because what you're saying about, you know, AA, my sister went to AA. I, I'm sober. I never went through that. I didn't, I wasn't like, you know, what someone would call, you know, think that guy's an alcoholic. I just wanted to change my relationship to alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I have been to AA meetings and I remember going to them and and really thinking the a similar thing of like, you take on this identity and then another part of it is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is I'm sort of at the whim of my disease mm-hmm. as opposed to like, I'm actually traumatized and this is a coping mechanism to deal with trauma. And when I can learn about that, then, you know, you, you start to build a relationship with it, but you're not actually... Because I think when you say I'm at whim of my disease, you now hand away power, right? which can be the first part of a pathway to healing to say yes. like, it wasn't my fault. Amazing. It's not your fault. Um, but at some point you have to grab back the power of choice and the same resistance that I've seen to people like Lauren, um, uh, Laura McCown's work mm-hmm. and Holly Whitaker is that that resistance even from the AA community of like this is what works that it does not or and no uh, AA works I'm not saying it doesn't mm-hmm. but if it has let's say a four or five percent success rate I think it's something like that yeah. that means there's ninety five percent that still have an opportunity for something else and it's like this idea that one way is the way because it's my way and it's where I identify and anything that threatens the very rooted sense of identity I have in this, I want to not give any time or attention to. It's a very, it feels also heightened now that anything that disagrees with, like our ability to sit in our own discomfort of possibly being wrong is, it seems very vacated. I was I was just thinking about this this morning, actually, when I was thinking, I wish there was a way that I could connect with people on, let's say, the other ideological side of of politics from me and really sit and say, you know, one of the things we talk about as therapists is how um, one way to show emotional, let's say, maturity, emotional health um, is being able to hold the tension of opposites, right? Is mm. being able to sit with conflicting truths mm. and understand that not all one thing has to be right, not all one thing has to be wrong. Yes. And so I would just not just say people on the other side of politics, but myself too, right? Or whether it's AA and people who don't follow AA, 
I think a lot of this is we need to be able to question what else can be true. Right. Right. And what, when, you know, what is that so hard? Uh, yeah. What else can be true? <laughs> yes. And whenever there is an inability to question, yes. that is when it becomes a problem, I think. Right. Uh, we we are can't there. Ask right. We are deeply in yeah. that space where I find like, if I just want to, we were talking about this before we started recording, but I find that what is a healthy normal, like if you got prescribed a blood pressure drug by a doctor, and he said, hey, I went on the internet and I wanted to learn about the possible side effects, and blah, blah, blah. People go, that is so bright of you, way to take responsibility. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you mention the V word or anything, it that same empowerment is dismissed. And I've been really curious about that because to me, I, I personally am starting to like feel that it's this fear of our own mortality. Like mm-hmm. if you don't actually do what I think is the right way, because I've been convinced um, and I'm pro-science, this is not an anti-science thing. I'm pro-science, but it's like, we can't even question that. And if you don't do what we're supposed to do because we've been told this is the way out, mm-hmm. as opposed to just, as you both said to like pause and like yeah. really just consider, am I taking in all the, imp- just that healthy pause you know, and making a decision that's right for you. It is, it is the sharpest zone I've ever seen in my life. I've never seen people get so emotional about it. And I think maybe just because I'm, I've one always been curious about science and research. And I, you know, in my former work, I was taught to criticize clinical trials and to Mm -hmm. explore them. So for me to sit and make a decision, I want to actually explore every option and risk benefits and all those things. But how did we get here? You know, you know, I just think there's such a hunger to have the archetype of dad, something bigger holding us, right? Like if you look, and this is like where, you know, if, if you are not on um, the side of, you know, being in alignment with Donald Trump, you are very quick to not see this within yourself. And I think on both sides, there is this, like, I just want to believe some big brother, dad, whoever is holding me and I am held and I'm okay. And I don't have to think about it or question. And when you start to question that it does, to your point, bring up all of our like existential fear, right? Like if big brother's not holding me, if I'm not contained in some way, then what does that mean? I'm just sort of like free floating here. will. Yes. Right. Which is terrifying. terrifying. Right. And and I wonder also if there's a piece of it that's Mm -hmm. that. And if you question and I watch you question, does that somehow trigger in me the reminder that I have not been questioning? Mm, That's a really good point. That's so good. Because I find that someone will, if I just, I am really good at creating objectivity in the way I communicate because I know that it's like, attack zone if you don't. And that's good. That's a learned art that's necessary in order to be a bridge of conversation or have a conversation that I'm trying to get clarity with. But I find it'll be like other people might misinterpret what you're saying or use your influence carefully. And I'm like, don't you shame Mm -hmm. on me? Like Mm -hmm. I'm allowed to have this conversation, be responsible with your, and I'm like, how can anyone have (laughs) right? You're just afraid. And I love what you said is is the inquiry or the curiosity a reminder that we've never taken the time? And also what you said, Danae, that like like this idea of I'm floating around. Wait, if I'm floating around, then that means I'm grabbing onto things. Things are not grabbing onto me, mm-hmm. which means I have choice, 
but I haven't been using it. And that is, as you said, Vanessa, terrifying because then I realized that, and this was my sort of shot to the heart was when I woke up to the fact that I was choosing my life. Why was I choosing what I was choosing? Right. And I, and this is collectively what's getting smashed. And I'm like, good, let's wake up, make some free choices. You don't have to participate uh, to the end. You don't have to buy stuff to feel better about yourself because you're already good. You know, like, as you said, like these systems, oh, I love that we're deconstructing all this. This is fun. (laughs) Yeah. I think, you know, and you speak to this a lot, Mark, that when people start to evolve, expand in any way within themselves, it does, to Vanessa's point, become so threatening to other people because it is like this giant mirror being placed in front of you. Like when a marriage ends or a relationship ends, everybody starts to feel deeply activated in their own relationships. Like Mm. I see this all the time. Someone will come in, um, their friend is getting a divorce and it starts to just like agitate their own marriage, right? Because it's like, somehow I am starting to question how we've been on autopilot, how we haven't been having sex, how we don't talk about a lot of things that, you know, need to be talked about. And I think that is what is, I don't know, it's what's being stirred right now for so many people, right? Is like the things that are, we are being called to question that we're really resistant to sit in the discomfort of questioning. I have this um, this quote. I want to read you guys this this young quote that I actually just yeah. kind of articulated and put into <laughs> an article recently that I published because I'm I'm kind of rolling it around in my head. So when Jung talks about problems, right, specifically, he says we don't so much solve our problems as we outgrow them. Hmm. We add capacities and experiences that eventually make us bigger than the problems. Hmm. And he said the greatest and most important problems of life are all, in a certain sense, insoluble. They can never be solved; only outgrown. So, yeah, I think there's a little bit of what we're speaking to here that that lends itself to that, right? Which is as a collective, it's not that we're solving these problems, but I think that there's a group of us who have been hungry for adding these capacities, hungry for questioning, hungry for this growth. And as we're doing that, are we elevating? Right? Mm-hmm. Are we uh, metabolizing? To use your word from the beginning today, you know, are we are we kind of growing? Not growing, but are we elevating above? Uh, and what happens, I guess, when you're not that person? What happens when you're not adding capacities? What happens when you're terrified to expand? Are you then trying to bring that person down? Is that person then showing a mirror to yourself that you're not capable or not willing to do that? Is that what that rage is and that lashing out at that person? I think this is all kind of being stirred up right now, you know, politically, with our health stuff, with the environment, everything that's going on right now. Yeah. Yeah. We have squeezed as much as we can out of mother earth and mother earth is going, I'm going to squeeze you back. Get ready. (laughs) Yeah. And I think we see so much of that in the therapy rooms, you know, like that people feel like this is like problem solution, come in and fix me. And that is just, you know, I think it's like depth psychology is a different way of holding what we came here as souls to do. I love depth psychology. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, that like we came here to learn. This is a life school. We came to continue to evolve like to the next level over and over and over. And when we're done, we're done, right? Like there is no like fixing what's broken. We were never broken. This is just a continuous process of understanding ourselves a little bit more. I love where you started with uh, that you were homies in a past life. Because I think, mm. you know, we started right with that. And I'm like, yeah, we're getting into some stuff here. I like that. I've been watching that. Uh, have you watched that show on Netflix on near-death experiences? 
Oh no, but it's on our queue. We, John and I, we're like, oh shit, we got to get into this. So good. I'm only 30 minutes into the first episode and I'm already like, I, it was late at night when Kai and I started it and I was like, oh, this is going to, I, it was already right in the zone. But I think when you start to the, to consider your life within that space of like, I'm here for a purpose. Mm-hmm. It's bigger than me. And when you watch that show, for anyone who's sort of like not familiar with, NDEs as they call them and just the process I think what it does is it gives us the because all of us are afraid of death because we believe that's the end and I Mm. think when you can because we've also been one manipulated by our spiritual practices in that the churches have become a form of control manipulation and so then that severs our relationship from the greater from Christ consciousness from whatever our bag is but when you can make a healthy uh, trip back to the spiritual side of believing that I'm being invited to expand throughout my life, that I'm being handed what I can handle, that I must grow through it, as you were saying, Vanessa. And so this idea when it's grander than you, I think you feel like you belong all of a sudden. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And that requires questioning. Even getting to that thought process requires questioning large systems that have been in place for a very long time that have told us what to think, how to act, what to believe, um, what's going to happen when we die, right? Um, as if they know. And so even being able to say, <laughs> yeah, right. what is this? You know, that requires you being in that place of questioning what is. And that is, again, that mirror that turns around people who aren't questioning and making them realize, oh, shit, I'm not doing that. <laughs> mm, yeah, which is why I think that is to me like the holy treasure of grief, yeah. right? And of being that close to death. You know, um, Vanessa and I lost someone we went to grad school with a year ago. And like, it's so like in the most beautiful way, rocked me into like being awakened. You know, like I was mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, I am awake because there's something about like touching just the finite nature of all of this that really, really calls us into questioning, like, how do I want to live? Like, really, like, how do I want to hold this time here that I think is just is really beautiful. And I think if we hold this whole like moment in time in terms of like how we're being asked to evolve, it is like the grief and the loss Mm. and the pain is bringing us to a holy place if we're willing Mm. to hold it that way. And it's delicious if when we go through it in a way, I don't mean to dismiss the actual pain of that suffering Mm -hmm. of grief, but to say like, you are opened up to the richness of life, like the richness of the soil. You know, I Mm -hmm. remember someone saying to me who is a scuba diver, that the moment you start scuba diving, you are exposed, you have one have so much more reverence for the ocean. Mm -hmm. And you see that there is a whole other world going on below the water. And I, I think the same is true that when you start to explore the fringes of your psyche, that you start to go into the darkness of what you're afraid of, and you actually realize that that's where you dwell in so many ways, the other parts of you. And, you know, in being able to explore that in like what we're being invited to do, I, I just love this conversation. I'm just like, this is everything. Like if we could just stop and say, accept the invitation that we're being given to go mm-hmm. into that space. I would imagine it first feels overwhelming because the being severed from it means participating in what we do to escape it. And Vanessa, you were saying like, we then start to question the systems. And I, I think 
I certainly did this. And what has woken me up in the last, I mean, having been a pharma rep, I don't think it gets better than being part of a system than being actual rep that's repping the system in, in that we sort of look historically and we go like, historically, people were entrapped by the government. Historically, people were lied to by the government. Historically, companies lied about food and sugar and fat and all these things. Historically, that happened, oh gosh, just recently, but it's historical. Pharma companies paid billion dollars in fines for lying and manipulating data. But that's all not today because today everyone's in integrity. And we're Mm. like, wait, there's been what? How many? I don't even know a trillion dollars or whatever. There's been a massive transfer of wealth. So someone's like, well, that's not the right amount. It doesn't matter. It's the premise. It's like, there's been a massive transfer of wealth again from the collective to the top. And when you start to actually wake up to the possibility that you're still part of a system that oppresses you and oppresses your mind, and then we oppress each other, Mm -hmm. it's it's possibly mind fracturing, which I think is actually good. It, it, it's a lot to hold. And and also in saying that, I, I, I almost feel like I have to put words to, there are going to be a large population of human beings who are either not willing or not capable of going there. And that has to be okay. Because I, I, I do think that there's a lot of people um, in this kind of wellness world that we're all in. It, it is very like, we are also the problem in the totally. sense that we are othering just as much as the quote unquote other side is, right? Like if you're not on board with this, then you're the problem, right? And mm-hmm. this is part of that what we were saying earlier of holding the tension of opposites, like realizing there are conflicting truths. Not everybody is going to get on your train. Mm-hmm. Can you be Love okay that. with that? Um, and can you make that, does that not make them bad, right? Right. But yeah, necessary. And- Actually. Yeah, necessary. Right. Exactly. Because that is the tension we need actually to grow to for expand. our own initiations. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, what is incumbent upon all of us is to do the work of sort of it's like all of the thing we've been doing is like calling people out, calling people yeah. out. I think it is time for us to start calling people in and attempting to, you know, mm-hmm. to just understand, right? Like there's this John Stokes quote that I love. What we don't talk to, we don't understand. What we don't understand, we fear. What we don't, or what we fear, we destroy, right? Mm-hmm. And so I just keep thinking about how much our work right now is to try to understand. John, Vanessa's partner, says this all the time seek to understand before you see. Before being understood. <laughs> before being understood. My brain just left me. Um, <laughs> but I think our work is just to attempt to understand, right? And I, I do think, you know, to what you were saying, Vanessa, um, I think all of us do have to evolve regardless, right? I think that, you know, Eckhart Tolle says like, the loss of the human race would not be the worst thing. (laughs) Like something else will happen. Like, you know, the world will continue. As you see, like the earth started to heal itself in really profound ways during 2020, right? Like we have been destroying mother earth. So the loss of us would not be the worst thing. But if we are going to stay here on this planet, we have to evolve. Like we have to move into a collectivism. Yeah, that's that's the option, right? And so I think- Well, I guess 
sorry to cut you off. Like what I, what I mean by that is I think um, I expand on this idea. Not everybody is going to be willing or capable. And for us that are, that us that are seeking that we need to um, pay more attention to our internal systems, our internal lives. Stop trying so hard to force it on people who have their heels dug in. Because I do think that, and, and maybe I'm wrong. This is just something I'm kind of like pontificating as it's coming up. That in itself, it's like, that to me almost feels like a, a lose-lose battle. Like I, and I'm speaking for myself, I, I struggle with how much am I going to try to convince or drag along people who don't want to come with, or am I going to put my focus into myself and the expansion of everyone that includes them? And am I going to move forward and naturally they're going to benefit from it? Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Like, am I articulating that? Yeah. yeah. But what I would argue and what I've had so many conversations with clients about whose families are fractured right now because they are on opposing sides of this conversation is it is not your work to change them. It is your work right. to attempt to understand how they feel, right? Yeah. It's it's almost like we are being invited to heal our individual codependency and that yeah. involves collective codependency, which I never yeah. really thought of like our collective mm-hmm. to like save people who don't want to be saved. It's like, we just take what is our survival strategy as an individual and make it on a macro level, as opposed to being like, I'm going to do my own internal healing and do it with people who want to do it. And, you know, I love what you said about like, we're doing a lot of calling out and it's time to call in, which again, brings back that subject of creating community of like, Mm. um, we become I remember, God, I love Francis Weller's words. He just is so poetic. And I remember he said, we go from constantly seeking a home that we never had. Mm. At some point, we have to turn around and become the home that welcomes others. Mm. And I think that's so much of that initiatory process of like from maiden to mother, from like Mm. adolescent to adult, from, from boy to man, that we're all being invited to have the adults show up in the room. Like the adults not in the room when we're enraged at each other. Mm-hmm. The adults not in the room when I can't hear your point of view. The adults not in the room when we're name calling. And gosh, there's not a lot of adults in the room. The there's- ones we elected to be adults are actually often the most toddler-like. And I think that's why we're so untethered is we have no elders. We have yeah. nobody who is saying like the wise elder saying, y'all settle down. Here's how we're going to handle this. Like yes. nobody is leading us from a state of like, I've been here before and this is how we handle it. And to your point, I think it's all of us need to sort of not from a space of like self-righteousness, you know, like I remember during the summer when all of the stuff was going on with the racial um, injustice and, you know, like conversations like that really coming to a head. I was sort of sitting in the space of, I think for all of us, our work is to sort of go inward to what you're saying, Vanessa, and say like, but what is my part in this? Like, what is my part in this as a woman of color? Like, how have I played a part in these systems? How have I benefited from, you know, things that I'm blind to? Because it's just so easy for all of us to be in the space of self-righteousness and like, this is why I know what's right and you just need it. Like, and I just think then we're all, with our heels dug in, in our, our, like, I know I'm right. Right. But if we can sort of say, but what am I missing? Where are my blind spots here? And I think that's so much of what we do in therapy is help hold space for someone to unpack and look at their blind spots. Right. Beautiful. From that space of unconditional love of like, Mm. you're safe to explore all of that. There's no shame in any of that. Let me hold that 
even the grief that lives with where you used to pack shame, you know, Mm -hmm. like I didn't want to touch this thing because I was so ashamed of it. And you take it out and someone just holds it with grace. And you're like, wait, you're supposed to exile me. You're supposed to hate me. My family did, my religion did, my culture did, or I thought they would, and they likely probably would have. But it's like, how do we, and, and I love that idea of like in the therapy room, that's ultimately what people gain. And I think people get that from Um, humans who have explored their own spaces within, because when they pulled out and met their own stuff with grace and someone else offered it, they realized it was one of the most transcendent healing things. Yeah. I think that is the problem with, you know, Vanessa and I talk constantly about like why cancel culture is just not where we need to be, right? Like when we cancel people, there is no opportunity for for growth and understanding. And like, where do you go when you're canceled? Like what happens? And that's what we need to be curious about is like, what then, right? Where do you where, go? Yeah. Well, you go underground. Your beliefs don't change. You just right. dig your heels in more and then you become the victim and everybody else is the bad guy and you've been shamed, right? And we know what kind of grows from shame. And so we think we're doing this good thing by canceling people, but actually what's happening is we're exacerbating the problem because that person doesn't feel connected. That person Mm -hmm. doesn't feel like they have a safe space to like explore the questions that are coming up for them. They just shut it down. They they keep themselves quiet and they continue those beliefs that we actually wish they didn't have or or wish they would expand beyond, right? Now, also the idea of canceling, like there's still consequences for things that are said, right? Yeah, of course. We need to hold people accountable, which we're seeing. And, you know, people are in arms about a specific person being quote unquote canceled right now. But canceling doesn't mean that you're without cancel culture or getting rid of cancel culture doesn't mean that we're without consequences. Yeah, agreed. And it's, it is certainly uh, one of those like if you fear being canceled, much like if you fear losing a relationship or you fear you won't actually speak your fully expressed self, even though you might actually, your intention might be love and unity and all those things. It's, it's created a very, an environment where it really shuns the opposition of our own opinions. Uh, you know, it creates uh, what you said before we started recording, like echo chambers, mm. because then I- it's like we get rid of everything we don't want on our social media. Or shames me. Because I don't want to feel that way. Right. And I actually think that's so much of what Donald Trump provided for people was a space where you will not be shamed, like the political correctness that you've been, you know, pushed out on the fringes of society because you're not like playing into or you don't, you're like, you're terrified to say the wrong thing. Um, You're welcome here. Come on in. You won't be shamed for like saying whatever, whatever you want to say, I'll say it, you know? And I think there was such a like exhale of feeling seen, feeling acknowledged and um, accepted as, as you are. Right. And I think that people know how you feel about them, regardless of what you say. And I think, you know, Vanessa and I talk about this a lot that, you know, um, the progressive (laughs) liberal side of this country that is very like, you know, just feeling like people who supported um, Donald Trump, again, I'll, I'll say like, that, you know, they just don't know. And they're just like, you know, ignorant or whatever are just so missing, like what that feeling is. Like people are well aware of how you feel about them, even if you're not saying that. And Mm -hmm. it's just so dismissive and so not like looking at, you know, like where we do the exact same things that we're sort of pointing the finger at people for doing. I love that you hold that compassion of the perspective, you know, that mm-hmm. we can explore why anyone, because one thing I can, this, which is even weird to say, because people will probably get mad at me, is like one thing I could admire about the way that 
or a model of how Donald Trump shows up is that he says whatever he wants. And so he did that, even though the model of what a president should be, should be all these things, he completely shattered that mold. Now, I'm not saying what he said was okay or anything like that, but what you were saying that that invited the same desire for all of us. Like we felt um, the people maybe who really were drawn to supporting him felt witnessed by that. And it does challenge, you know, like the way we're all supposed to just accept what is as opposed to start to question and challenge those systems. And that is, uh, you know, as we've said numerous times, it's like that facing the reality that you haven't shared your voice, that you've been playing small, that all of those things is confronted with a lot of rage and a lot of grief. Hmm. And all that's healthy. All of that must be processed, though, because the world needs us in that sort of fully expressed, fully voiced um, space. Yeah. I think if we carry too much of this experience of not being seen and witnessed and, you know, like in that inward space of sorrow for too long, the heart shuts down. You know, Mm -hmm. Vanessa and I were having um, a conversation with someone yesterday on our IGTV where they were asking, like, I just feel like I'm numb and I'm scared that this numbness is going to continue. And we were saying, you know, numbness is actually like my emotions are at capacity and they haven't Mm -hmm. had any space to be released. Right. And so I think we need rituals as a society to bring to bring us back to our heart, to bring us back to one another and the space of being witnessed. We used to have that. And, you know, circling back to our whole conversation about cults, I think that is what those spaces offer for people. Um, if you look at the 12-step rooms, like what they do is offer like weekly or however often you go rituals of allowing your emotional capacity to be released and held by the collective. And we don't have that, you know, and I was looking at some of the people after the the whole thing that happened at the Capitol on Wednesday. And I was just so struck with compassion as I was seeing like the close up on some of these men's faces, you know, like there was just such a, like a void and like a shutdown yeah. of yeah. the heart space. And I was like, Oh God, you know, like their pain has been so prolonged with no container to hold it. And, you know, we're so fortunate that that we have this, you know, Vanessa and I run um, virtual group therapy groups. And so like, we, we just like have a lot of containers for these spaces, but so many people don't have that. And it leads to a deep shutdown of the heart space mm-hmm. when you don't. Well, and, and the shutdown then becomes, for not everybody, but for a lot of people, it becomes what is the action then that comes from that, right? Then the action itself is what is scary and damaging and hurtful. It's Mm -hmm. the lashing out. Like if you don't actually have that space to process things like grief and rage, again, very normal for us to Mm -hmm. experience. But if it's not held in process, it comes out in really dangerous ways. And that I think is also what we're seeing. And Danae, you so beautifully, you know, last summer, very many times said to me, Whenever you were thinking about the George Floyd situation, you said, I just kept zooming in on the officer's face who did this and seeing the void, mm-hmm. seeing the void of emotion, seeing the pain in his eyes and thinking, God, what happened to you yes. to make you capable of taking somebody's life and not even flinching? Right. And I, you're a person of color and you're the one that turned me to that. Right. I was in my place of indignance and like, you know, this person and, you know, he's evil. And to actually say, no, he's not, he's, he's in Mm. pain too. And we need to look at that because that action, the murdering of an, uh, of an innocent life is that action that I'm talking about. That's how that stuff manifests itself when it's not held and processed in a safe way. Yeah. 
Yeah, that yeah. I, it brings forward that thought of like hurt people, hurt people. You know yeah. that, that, and but healed people, heal people. You know, it's like this um, thing that's so contagious, and we can choose what our contagion should be or could yeah. be. Yeah, I remember hearing Oprah saying that once, and it really changed me. You know, like if we meet people in the space of instead of saying what's wrong with you, saying what happened to you, it's a oh. completely different experience wow. of building space for someone. You know, that's a powerful question. What yeah. happened? Mm-hmm. It was like the first time anyone, you know, you think of like a teenager who's acting out. It's mm-hmm. like they're not doing it because they want to disrupt the home. They want to be noticed. They want to be someone to sit with them, someone to hold them, you know? That's a beautiful, actually, way to put it, Mark. We talk about that within like family systems theory, right? It's like when you have the quote unquote problem child, mm-hmm. they're always they're acting out symptoms of what's going on in the family system. Mm. And so rather than trying to shut down the quote unquote problem child, the identified patient, the IP as we call them, it's actually looking at them and saying, okay, what are you acting out? Mm. What are you trying to express? What are you trying to bring light to? And if we can look at the family system, and I would say we should do that as a collective society too, and say, what are these problem child, children, you know, (laughs) trying to show about our internal system? Like there's a lot of things going wrong that people are acting out and trying to bring awareness to. To be healed, to be brought forward, to be witnessed, right. to be held. So you used, uh, you've used the words ritual quite a few times, and I love uh, that word. I'm curious, uh, for all of us who are sitting in that space of grief, rage, or maybe we've like touched the edge and they're like, uh, listening to this podcast has reminded me maybe I should question this. Is, I should go back to what mm-hmm. I don't want to touch. I'm curious, what are some some strategies, some rituals uh, that people can do that really help um, process that and, and move into that space of, of through the initiatory process? You know, I think it's so much about us bearing witness to one another to, um, you know, I, I have a client like we're like, we like to talk about like, say the thing, right? Like say the thing that is the scariest thing to say out loud to someone finding a safe space. Like, you know, we can gather in circles and they can be so much smaller than we imagine they need to be. Um, the other night, Vanessa and I and two other girls sat in a circle and just like, held space and connected and commune together. And I think the more that we can do that in our communities on, you know, smaller levels, just start to like bear witness to one another. There is healing in that. Like, really, how are you though? Like, how are Mm. you really, you know, and, and listening and holding space for one another in that way. I believe that is how we start to heal, you know, and then, and then we expand on that. And, you know, when I work with couples, so much of what I'll have them do is like back and forth. Each person gets five minutes for the other person to just like hold space for their day. Right. And without like interjecting or advice giving or, you know, commenting, you just sort of hold space, listen to what that person has to tell you about their day, let them be witnessed. And then you sort of speak to the emotions that they must have felt as they went through their day. And it is so amazing how much couples will come back to me after playing with that exercise for a week and be like, we have had like the best week together. We have felt mm-hmm. so deep in our connection. We have felt so um, different, you know, and I think it's just, we are so hungry as human animals to be witnessed. I think I would add on top of that too, like extra layers. If I were to bring in my understanding and the way that I bring ritual into my work with clients and into myself is 
the per, like the collective, like you were saying, connecting with others, and then layering on top of that the connection to nature, mm-hmm. and then layering on top of that the connection to spirit and to soul. Because I, I think for it to really be a ritual, I think our um, our internal landscape needs to have it touch all of those different uh, poles, if you will. The real kind of the moving through ritual, the real initiatory experience comes from when we connect and tap into all of these very important pieces of ourselves, the connection to other, the connection to self, the connection to soul, something bigger than you and the connection to nature. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that right now, especially anything that we can do consistently at a time when we are still in this really strange moment that is difficult and that we're all having a hard time holding is to just bring in daily rituals. Like I started running and it's, it's been just something that is like, I do this consistently almost every day and it is making me feel grounded in something. And I wasn't even um, aware of how much like on a somatic level, I needed something consistently Mm. to be in my body to bring just that sense of grounding. So I think as much as you can to what you're saying, even if that's like every day I get out and I walk for 20 minutes, like that will make you feel that sense of containment. Yeah. I find for like, if I'm not exercising, then I can feel the buildup of the energy. And if it starts to express as anxiety or like, Mm -hmm. I'm a little more irritable, you know? Yeah. Where I'm like, "Mm, this isn't her, this is me. You know, it's like, I haven't boxed in a couple of days or something. I could, I mean, I could talk to you both for hours. I am so appreciative of your time and coming on today. I'm and you're coming back so we can keep just jam about life events all the time. <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Because yeah, I love your points of view and the way that you bring in the compassionate space, no matter the position. And I think we need more of that. And thank you for offering a window for people into the therapeutic space into through your, your podcast, really um, providing that space for people to feel witnessed Um without having to be, you know, on a Zoom call with you or anything like that. Um, so curious for the people listening, where do they find uh, more of, of both of you? Um, so we're both on Instagram. I'm Danae Logan Selkin. Vanessa, you are Vanessa S. Bennett. Um, and then Cheaper Than Therapy is the name of our podcast. And um, yeah, we also both do um, like group processing, group theory, theory therapy <laughs> um, <laughs> calls through something called the TAT lab, which has been just really um, a nice containing space during this time as well. Perfect. Well, we'll make sure we link all those things out. Where do you go to the TAT lab? Um, through their website. Yeah. So it's the TAT dash LAB. Um, and so today runs groups on singlehood and expired relationships um, on reparenting. I run a series of codependency groups um, and classes. So it's been, it's been pretty profound. I think for both of us, it's a great community. Well, great place to, if people listening to this are like, yeah, I want to go just see what it's like. What a safe space to do that, to like go see what it's like. I find the healing space of a group is actually like, I've done both individual therapy, coaching and group uh, stuff. And the group is, it's almost like individual therapy on a hyperdrive, you know, Mm -hmm. because it's Mm -hmm. like you're going through the processing and you're being witnessed often by people you might have. Like I found when I did a men's group, because I had previously had wounds with men, it was so healing to be witnessed by men. And it was so uncomfortable, of course, because that's where my wounds laid. Uh, But it was transformative. So 
thank you for the work that you do. And anyone listening, if you're feeling even a little call, uh, answer it. So thank yeah. you for your time. Appreciate it. Yeah. You both. Thank you so much, Mark. You're such a gift. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.